0: It's Jennifer Diane Goston, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have Many of your burning questions answered here. My next guest lovingly regards Laura K. Joy from episode 105 on this podcast to be an amazing mentor during her journey towards search and subsequently a reunion with her biological family. Her name is Katie Samantha Peck. It was Laura, an adoptee too who took Katie under her wing and helped her navigate adoption land. Katie is a domestic same-race adoptee raised in a close adoption by an adoptive mother who was also adopted. Her name at birth was Samantha Claire, and it was changed at the time of adoption to Catherine Ann. She shares with me what it feels like to relate to her name given at birth. At the age of 37, Katie searched and entered a very positive reunion with her maternal and paternal family. In this episode, she shares a part of her lived experience as a social worker and uncovering the forced adoption practices instituted by the Latter-day Saints Church that still continue to this day. Allow me to introduce you to a mental health therapist who specializes in working with adopted adults and all members of the Adoption Constellation. Katie has chosen to turn her pain into purpose by being a professional, valuable resource within our community. She is a published writer who accepted my invitation to read two of her pieces written in the Flourish writing group. It is always a treat to hear an author guest read their powerful and impactful words aloud for my listening audience. Well, hello, Katie. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, I'm doing great. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you. And we met through Laura K. Joy and I asked her to recommend an adoptee to be on the podcast. And it was like within 24 hours, I was connected to you. So a shout out to Laura for that. And she's such a lovely woman just as you are. And I'm glad for my audience to get to know you better. There's so much Mm -hmm. we want to talk about. I remember when we first had a a conversation about Mm -hmm. your experience with the Flourish experience, the book, the power of Adoptee Healing and community. So I know we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. in a little bit. I also know that you were part of Adoptee Voices cohort. Mm -hmm. I think you said cohort two. And I didn't get to meet you there because that was the hone your craft track. And so I was happy to know that you were a part of Adoptee Voices as well. So
1: just, yeah, just,
0: I, I have to say that.
1: Thank you. I've really enjoyed and grown a lot from being in community and writing alongside other adopted people. So those were some important experiences.
0: Yeah, I bet. I think writing is such a great tool for anybody, but certainly for adoptees to kind of get it out of our heads mm-hmm. and to express things that we've been feeling that oftentimes resonate with other adoptees. I've often heard adoptees say, I I finally can put words to how I've been feeling because that adoptee wrote it down.
1: Yes. It provided a language for me that I was honestly lacking. Once I was in community with other adopted people, they were often putting words or languaging experiences that they had had and that really resonated with me in a different way from being with or writing with non-adopted people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a chance to to get this book, The Flourish Experience, and it is just beautiful, the words from adoptees that were a part of that writing group and I'm um, so glad to have this book. And, and I was able to read trusting myself in the year flourish evidence that you wrote. And in each paragraph, I'm like, yeah, I ordered my original documents and I trusted I could live through what they said and, and contacted a search angel. I trusted I could live through what she found. I was like, yes, like every part of that piece resonated with me. And I, I don't know if you'll be able to read it uh, for this recording. I hope so. Towards the end, so mm-hmm. just want to throw that out there. I think it would benefit the listener to hear about trusting oneself. So, I'd love to. Yeah. So we we're gonna talk about quite a bit. We were saying right before I push record, there's so much for you to share. Being a social worker and just uncovering the systematic and bureaucratic truths of adoption. I think I want to really start with a quote that we both knew about or were familiar with by Dr. Gabor Mate. Mm -hmm. And he says, a normal reaction to abnormal situation is often a person's experience. And so, what what do you think about about that?
1: i I love that quote. and in general, Gabor's work and um the the speaking he's done around adoption and trauma has been really influential to my own uh, career as a social worker. And that quote about a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, I've heard that connect for many adopted people. I remember being in an online conference or panel where it was talked about and I just saw the heads nodding. And what it meant for me was I connect with having CPTSD as a result of my adoption, as do many of the clients that I work with in my private practice with adoptees and often we are collecting these symptoms or diagnoses throughout our life as adopted people and not you know finding that right label and it not and not making sense and i remember the moment and i wrote it right in my journal relinquishment and adoption is what is causing this ptsd And it's a normal reaction to the abnormal situation of being separated from one's biological mother. So that's where that quote really hits home for me is that our trauma reactions, ways of moving through the world as adopted people, ways that we cope, all of those mental health symptoms are a normal reaction to the abnormal situation of being raised by genetic strangers
0: mm. thank you for sharing that I think you stated that perfectly and as I continue to to learn more about Dr. Mate's work that keeps coming up like whether mm-hmm. it's addiction whatever these these reactions that people have mm-hmm. it's it's normal because the situation is abnormal that's going on. Yeah. So thank you for that.
1: So You're welcome.
0: Yeah. So wherever you want to start and however much you want to share about your adoption journey. Sure.
1: So I was born in 1984 to a teen mom. I was relinquished a few days later and I really didn't learn anything more about that time um, until I was about 37 years old. So I'll certainly come back to that in my story. I spent about seven weeks in foster care at that time. I was in two foster homes and then I was adopted through the LDS Family Services. LDS stands for Latter-day Saints, and many people know of that religion as the Mormon Church, and they were who uh, oversaw my adoption. The parents that adopted me were infertile, and that's why they were choosing adoption through their church. I always knew I was adopted, and I grew up in a really loving home. I don't have a real specific memory about learning It just feels like something that I was always aware of. What I think is particularly interesting is the adoptive mom that raised me was also adopted. And that definitely influenced how we regarded and talked about adoption in our house. She also had had a closed adoption and did not know her history, family identity, any of that information. And so the proactive stance they really chose, my adoptive parents was that I was chosen and special, and this was something to be celebrated. And that was kind of the prevailing theme in the house. Very one note, not any exploration or expression of other emotions related to adoption. I always felt something was different in that family dynamic. There was something unnatural, and um, really now I know that it was misattunement. So even though I was well-loved and well-cared for, I was very different. And, of course, we all know a genetic stranger from my adoptive parents.
0: Mm. So by misattunement, can you explore that a little bit more with me?
1: Sure. It was a word I Just learned over the last couple of years and learning more and researching adoption and working with my clients. So attunement is being emotionally in sync with another person, attuning to their emotional needs and that person feeling heard and seen in that moment. Misattunement is when we express an emotional need or a feeling and the person doesn't respond in a way that resonates or attunes with us. Instead, they respond in a way that makes us feel not seen or not heard, Mm. which kind of, of course, leads to really uncomfortable emotions like shame. And so misattunement is much more likely and an adoptive household because the caregivers aren't related to the child. We have this different makeup, this different way of moving through the world. So the chances of them misattuning to us emotionally just would be higher. And attunement is something that's present in all of our relationships. So Does that, you know, help explain it a little bit more?
0: Oh, absolutely. And it sounds like something that's pretty important to have.
1: Yes, to right. For us to have that healthy, secure sense of self and have healthy attachment as adults. I mean, having that attunement from our primary caregivers is critical. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I think, a big piece of what, occurs in the way adoptive families are creative what I will say additionally on that word is I know that my adoptive mom uh, did attune to me around adoption a bit I recall conversations with her where we would adoptee to adoptee wonder and get curious about our ethnicity our family, are they out there? Do they think of us? I mean, I remember having conversations with her that we just kind of explored these practical questions together, not necessarily the emotional side, but just, hey, I wonder who I am. Do you wonder too? And so she attuned to me in that way because she was also adopted.
0: Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that is your, sure. mom, your mom being an adoptee uh, as well. Yeah, that's got to be an interesting dynamic in your relationship. And, yeah, attunement means emotionally in sync. I like that. And I don't think I've heard a guest talk about that too much, so I really appreciate that. Sure, absolutely. You know, when we talked last you mentioned something that stuck with me. If you don't have any other options, and I'm thinking of the birth mom in a situation that's complicated, finding herself pregnant and everything else going on, particularly not having family support. And you said, if you Mm -hmm. don't have any other options, do you really have a choice? You want to talk about that? That was a powerful uh, statement. Yeah.
1: It's something that, Came to mind for me when I found my biological family and learned that myself and my birth mother were victims of a forced adoption and coercion and pressure had been at play. I realized she really hadn't been the decision maker. She was a minor, and the decision makers ultimately had been her parents and the church system and so as i explored what the messages she was receiving at that time by these adults in power i started to think did she have any choices at all or did she lose her ability to choose when she was presented with the following kinds of messages if you keep your baby You won't have, your child won't have eternal salvation. So this church doctrine was a message really saying in other religions, it would be saying damning to hell. Just kind of different language in this religion. Um, Your child would be better off. You can't care for your child. No man would ever want you if you keep your child. You will be in poverty. So these different messages were given to her. By these adults in power. And so I just began to wonder was there any choice at all in that moment?
0: Right. Which I think leads me into what you uncovered about the systematic and bureaucratic truths of adoption. Yeah, like that's, I know that's a really big topic. Yeah. But maybe you can share something about that, like what you sure. yeah, really came to understand about the church, LDS church and yeah, what your experience was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I know for me, I am as a social worker in school, we would learn about micro social work, which is on the individual level. So me, Katie, and then macro social work is the individual within a family or within a system. And I found as I walked down this path of my reunion, 37 years old, I've been a social worker, um, you know, over 10 years at that point. And first I'm searching for me and my story and I'm getting my birth documents and I'm finding my parents and we're starting at that micro level. But then eventually, as I started uncovering these hard truths about my adoption, I began to look at it in the context of a larger system. Okay, now we're on this macro level, putting social work brain back on. And I realized, oh my goodness, a transaction occurred here. There was a broker. So who oversaw this? And I I started kind of big picture this and then a way that I coped and managed my thoughts and feelings through reunion was a lot of research and kind of this intellectual processing. And at this time I was around a lot of other adoptees um, virtually, so I'm learning from them, but I'm also researching on my own. And what I ultimately learned both from my mother's experience and speaking with other adoptees and birth mothers that had been had their process go through lds family services is really there's a pipeline where young unmarried women when they become pregnant uh, church officials meet with them uh, church social worker they have a they used to have a family services division I know people are real familiar with Catholic Family Services, so LDS Family Services is the same kind of arm in the Mormon Church. They no longer work within adoptions, but in the 80s and for many decades, they were a huge player in the world of adoptions, making huge sums of money. So ultimately, what would happen and what happened to my mom is these church officials were coming right to the bedsides. They were sending messages around eternal damnation of your baby if you choose to keep them to minor women, which what is even their ability to understand those concepts, right? Like their frontal lobe part of their brain isn't even developed and you're telling them if you keep your baby, they're going to hell. And they, they're they signing, you know, she signed documents in a hotel room. And these coercion techniques were employed. And then on the other side, you've got my adoptive parents, the sweet, loving, infertile couple, paying a large sum of money to this church to adopt a baby. And then, of course, I'm I'm rehomed. And... Birth mother and adoptee both have trauma and the church gets a lot of money. They're the broker in the middle. And I realized two things from that. One, this didn't just happen to me. It happened to thousands of women and children through this church. And two, it's still happening right now.
0: That is just heartbreaking. Like just hearing you say, and let me just be clear, that the baby is going to, your your words were eternal damnation, that that's what would happen to the baby? Is that what the birth mothers were being told?
1: Yeah. So to just expand on that a bit, you know, kind of that heaven hell model in a lot of Christian faith, the Mormon church has something similar with some different names on the places that you go The best, the heavenly place is called the celestial kingdom. And for a family to be together in the celestial kingdom, and they say for time and all eternity, you have to be a child being raised by upstanding, heterosexual, church-going parents that are married. And then they can do this ceremony where they say, okay, you're all sealed together forever in heaven. For the young unmarried mother who now has broken this huge rule in the church, which is sex before marriage. If you keep your baby, well, we can't do that special ceremony because you're not married. You're not a good church member. You're a rule breaker and your child would they call it outer darkness that's where they would go and that's where you would go so that's one of the coercion techniques that's
0: horrifying it really to hear. it really is yeah mm. it,
1: it and this is part of the conversation with these mothers
0: yeah and that's still going on today
1: I know that LDS Family Services is not the big player that they once were in the private adoption world. I know that division of the church is no longer um, handling adoptions, but I believe the same practices, the same messages, Mm -hmm. like those negative core beliefs that you're giving to these young women. I believe all of those practices are still happening. And this is a religion that has a huge push on big families and a huge push on women's role being a stay at home mother. So for families like my adoptive parents who couldn't have children, the pressure was immense. I mean, we're going to definitely try to save up that money to adopt a baby because we don't fit in with this culture being a childless couple. So they've really got quite a system going there, right? You've got highly motivated to adopt people and then you're shaming your young unwed mothers.
0: Right. Well, I know the story of your reunion with your birth mom, which I'm just waiting Patiently for you to share that more of that, but before we do that, you know, I was reading your bio, and this I didn't know when we talked, at least I don't recall it. But you were born or given the name at birth of Samantha Claire, and your name was changed to Catherine and Catherine with a C. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to ask you, does anything come up for you when you hear the name Samantha?
1: Hmm, what a great question. That was a very earth shattering moment for me. I am an adoptee who is fortunate enough to have access to my original birth documents, And when they arrived in the mail, that's when I learned that I had a completely different name. And secondly, you can do this to people. (laughs) I mean, I I truly didn't, it, in, in everything I read about adoption, I don't think that had landed for me. And then I get this birth document saying Samantha Claire, and I've gone my whole life as Catherine Ann. And just the, the universe shifted for me in that moment, that something just massive happens to adoptees that does not happen to other people. So... When I hear Samantha, it feels comforting to me. I like it. It was incredibly strange for me to realize that I had existed and to this day still exist in people's minds as Samantha. So for 37 years, my birth mother had thought of me as Samantha. Right. I mean, these things psychological realities that adoptees are facing are just immense.
0: They are. They really are. Cause I was named Bonnie at birth and oh. yeah, just what you just said. I just picture my birth mother. That's who she knows me as. She, she doesn't know Jennifer. And and being in reunion with extended family members, cause my birth mother was deceased when I learned of her identity, but Everybody else they knew of Bonnie, you know, like even though they may not have remembered that's that's how she would refer to me when she told them that I was out there somewhere so yeah it's it is a, that's a interesting dynamic for us as adoptees, yeah it's
1: so unique and bizarre, and part of the Samantha. Story for me is in the 80s, and to this day, American girl dolls are a really popular toy. Parents adopted me. I'll pull the dolls back in, in a sec. They adopted me. They changed my name. They never told me they changed my name. And then, of course, in that family, I was went by Catherine, which I changed to Katie. So Katie, I actually really like. I picked that nickname myself. No one <laughs> bestowed that on me. Right. Um. But. When I found out about Samantha, what I couldn't believe was there's an American Girl doll named Samantha. She looks a lot like me and has long, you know, dark brown hair. And as a kid, they bought me that doll. These dolls are big. They're not quite life, life size, but they're tall. So they had me play with a doll that looked like me that was named Samantha. Mm-hmm. This stuff is just weird that happens to adopted people. I mean, what? (laughs) Yeah. So there I was little Katie playing with a Samantha doll. (laughs) (sighs) What I've done as an adult to help heal and reclaim that identity is I'm legally changing my middle name to Samantha and I use it professionally So I go by Katie Samantha in my, for my business. And yeah, that feels right to me, Katie Samantha.
0: That is so cool. Yeah. I like that. I love how we can take agency, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of Laura Kay right now.
1: Me too. (laughs) Um, Clearly she's been a friend and almost like a mentor to me and that she's been further in her journey and, yeah, she's somebody who has certainly exhibited that and demonstrated that to me. And when you're an adoptee, it, it's so helpful to see no other adoptees at varying points in their own journeys. It really offers you a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I would love for the audience to hear about your reunion with your birth mom yeah. because she did something really extraordinary that I just, it's nothing short of amazing. So wherever you want to start.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. (laughs) Let's see, where I, I left off before was that I grew up in this household with an adoptive mom. I did some searching in my early 20s. When I did, when I received my social work degree, I completed a thesis around adoption trauma it wasn't groundbreaking or anything but i was kind of dipping my toes in at 22 that adoption was trauma and also i probably had some family out there i poked around a little but i had very limited information about my birth mother and nothing on my birth father and You know, 15 years ago in my early 20s in New York, we weren't able to obtain our original birth documents yet, so I didn't accomplish or find anything at that time. The pivot for me when I really dove into the search and reunion process was when two things happened. New York changed their original birth certificate law, and I believe that was at the end of 2020. And the second thing that happened in my life was I had created a 23andMe account years prior. And I remember saying to my husband, so what do they do? Just email you one day and tell you you have a sibling? I'm like, that's absurd. Like, how is that their business model? But there I was with my 23 me account open that I could get an email like that any day. And I did. So I got an email that I had a half-sister match. And that happened around the same time that uh, New York State changed their law. So I remember literally being kind of catatonic, like knees curled up on my dog bed. So I have an English bulldog, and I thought, my life's changing. I've got to i got to figure out what all this means. I've got to get my birth documents. I've got to, who is this sister? It's time. So I was 36. I entered a year of therapy. I entered a one year long writing group called flourish, which I know we've already touched on. So I was very intentional. I didn't just order my birth documents and work with a search angel without a lot of intentionality. Mm -hmm. So I started learning a lot about adoption, about trauma, And just supporting myself emotionally through therapy. And I did that for probably about a year. And then at the beginning of 2021, I ordered my birth certificate. Of course, learned that my name was changed. And then through the support of my Flourish community, I learned about Search Angels. And I began working with one named Marnie who just was lovely and did a incredible job. And I gave her two things. I gave her my birth certificate with the name and I now have my birth mother's name on that document. Since there was no birth father listed on my birth certificate, DNA was our avenue to see if we could find any paternal family. So I had the half-sister match. I had the 23andMe account and provided all of that to a search angel. Very quickly, she was able to find all of my maternal and paternal family. She found both parents alive. I actually had multiple grandparents alive. I Aunts, uncles, cousins. She really found a lot of family, so I feel quite fortunate with that.
0: That's great, um, yeah.
1: No, I know. And I think part of that is searching younger. I'm not young at all. But as, you know, someone that's 38 and had really young birth parents, they're in their 50s. So, you know, I think that of that helped. But I was fortunate. I mailed letters a month or two later. So all of these steps I would kind of process, I would write, I would talk to my therapist, I process with my husband and move real intentionally because this is obviously very overwhelming. So I mailed letters the same day to my birth father and my birth mother. The search angel did not know how they knew one another because my birth mother had been located in Idaho, my birth father had been located in Maryland. Neither one was here in New York state where I live. She couldn't put the pieces together about my two parents, but she found them in their addresses. So the letters went in the mail. It was a grueling two weeks. (sighs) I heard nothing for two weeks. And then the week of my 37th birthday, two days before my birthday, my birth father called. I turned 37. And then two days after my birthday, my birth mother called. So all of that happened quite quickly.
0: Mm, yeah. And this is really still kind of recent because this is 2021, yeah. right?
1: Right. So this is all, I'm about two years into my reunion. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is definitely recent. Um, so much has evolved during that time. I was fortunate And that both of my parents were very open, loving, compassionate. Um, Quite quickly, my birth mother said, you have no idea the joy I feel. I always wanted you. I always loved you. I wanted to keep you. And those statements, of course, are just so profound and they're just corrective. Like my heart was just so, so healed in that conversation with my birth mom. My birth father did not know about me. So they actually met when he was traveling through the area. Uh, When my birth mother was a teenager, she did live in New York for a few years with her mom and stepdad. She was 16 when she got pregnant. He was 20. He was traveling through the area on a road trip. So that was the piece the search angel could not figure out. You know, neither of them live here. She didn't know why I was born here. And so they met when he was on a road trip. And it was one night and it was the 80s. So they didn't have a way of connecting with one another like we would today with the Internet. So by the time she realized she was pregnant, he was gone and she didn't know how to reach him. So he found out that i was his daughter when his other daughter matched with me on 23andme so that was the half sister match i had two half siblings through my biological dad and so the only reason i found him my mother would never have been able to lead me to him was because i dna matched with his daughter
0: wow and that's something It is. Yeah. That's extraordinary.
1: Mm -hmm. And much like those corrective statements she said to me that were so healing. One of the first things my biological dad said to me was, I have room in my heart for you. Mm. And I'll, I'll just never forget, you know, that statement meant the world. He, you know, has, he has another family and, a lot of pieces to put together and yeah, he said, I've ruined my heart for you. So pretty quickly I had two parents and various other family members that were pretty all in on this.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that going back to something you said earlier that you, you did some work. I mean, whether we're talking about therapy or I should say preparation for whatever Mm -hmm. happened during the search. And Mm -hmm. reunion, yeah. And joining the writing groups played a a part too. And I know you wrote a poem that was published in The Flourish Experience. Would you like to read that? Sure, I'd
1: love to. So this is a poem I wrote about my time in community with other adoptees, the one-year class called Flourish that I was part of. And the title of this poem is Flourish, a Poem born and at once alone placed under gaslight for warmth the clink of coins for a lullaby belonging only to self now chameleon for others adopt adapt lost untethered seeking a family of friends forged in courage and voice there are others together we rise
0: that's beautiful together we rise there are others i love how you put the mm-hmm. periods too
1: mm, thank you i was just listening to your episode with greg gentry and he mentioned the phrase together we rise of course it had nothing to do with my poem but what caught me about it was how those words clearly hold meaning for adopted people and how powerful community has been for so many of us.
0: It truly has. Like, there's no getting around that. Fellowshiping with another adoptee or in Mm -hmm. groups with other adoptees plays, I think, a major part of healing. Yeah, I mean, not only do you not not have to carry, I say carry the load alone, and not only do you realize, yeah, it's other people that are going through many of the feelings that I have and have had Mm -hmm. for decades, you know, I wasn't allowed growing up to to fellowship with other adoptees, so I feel Mm -hmm. to a great extent I was carrying this load alone, and and to be able to be in community now at this point in my life is everything. And, oh. I, and I know I've seen mm-hmm. your words on the page about purpose. I think that, yeah, I have found my purpose with like what happened to me, being able to use that as a part of my purpose in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And how incredible is that to turn your pain into purpose right that's what you've done or you know that's what any of us that choose to work somehow in the world of adoption or with adoptees or give of ourselves to other adoptees it's we've transformed something painful and confusing to our purpose and I, I relate to that since I work with adopted people in my private practice, and you certainly have made such a huge impact on our community. That's a really unique way to move through life, I think, if you're able to do that with something that was once so hard for you. Exactly. That's really
0: special. Yeah, I like yeah. how you put that. And and it feels so much like not only is it a part of my healing, my probably lifelong healing for me, but it's like I can help other people too. Like, I think it's so cool that I can heal and others can too. Like when we participate in whatever way, and it it may Mm -hmm. be just sharing our story. And I don't, I shouldn't say just, it may be sharing our story, which is Mm -hmm. big in and of itself. Mm -hmm. You know, through a memoir, through being a guest on a podcast, um, writing pieces, having a blog, you name it. Like there's so many ways to give back and to participate in helping ourselves and others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then we're gaining something, they're gaining something, you know, hearing other adopted people's stories is what, propelled so much of my growth and gave me so much of my confidence. when I was in the silo of like my own experience and going to therapy and just talking about what I was feeling and experiencing the growth was not is not in any way the same once I could hear other stories and oh well she had her name changed. Oh, he found his father and you know, they're best friends. Well, she found her mother, and it was a horrible falling out. And I watched all these stories, and then my confidence grew like, well, if they can live through that, they're survivors, mm-hmm. then maybe I can be a survivor and I can start taking my steps.
0: I'm glad you shared that because I would agree, my confidence also has grown. Listening to other people and what they were able to do i I know when I started going to adoption related conferences and meeting all these adoptees, like a decade ago, it just built and built the confidence, like you say, well, if they did that, if they wrote a memoir, you know, and got it out of their system out of their head, maybe I can too. like i mm-hmm. yeah, I just remember thinking. I can do this too. Like, it's like you get emotionally stronger when you learn the journey of other adoptees. Yes.
1: I love how you said that. It's like, oh, I don't have to just cry alone in my couch or, you know, I right. can, wow, I could maybe write a book about this. I, <laughs> could make, I could actually, I was just sitting on the fact that I could order my birth documents. I look back on that now and I'm like, are you kidding me? But for months I waited out of pure fear. It
0: became
1: possible to me. And yeah, I, I can't say enough. I'm glad that you connect with that.
0: hmm for sure. And all kind of emotional muscles built mm-hmm. for me, um, and, and still do, like listening to adoptees and spending time. I'm looking forward to a conference that's coming up and just to be in the same room, the same space with other adoptees. I, I just think that I don't have to fit in and I love spaces where I just belong and I, Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: I, I just, I treasure that. So it sounds like you've already told me what's been the most rewarding thing, but is there anything else that's been rewarding about being connected to the adoption community?
1: I think just finding that belonging. I mean, and I'll share more with you about my journey with my birth mother I definitely feel belonging with my biological family. But for many adoptees, you don't end up connecting with biological family. And I know for me, when I had not yet had that life experience, and it still stands to this day, some of the most profound feelings of belonging I've had have been in a room of adoptees. So to go a life, you know, jumping back to that word of misattunement, For many adopted people, we're going through life not feeling that true belonging and to I think we can grasp that a bit when we're around adopted people. There's like this shared language, there's normalizing, there's validating. And then that feeling seen and heard, feeling attuned to, I feel attuned too, when I'm with adopted people, hmm. I, I really feel seen. Right, And so I think many of us maybe weren't feeling that in our adopted families and have been searching for that. So I think it's, it's can be pretty profound what we can access in community. I know it sure was for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. The emotional piece, that's what's coming up for me right now, the emotional piece, I think it is a lot stronger for me in terms of feeling a sense of belonging with the adoption community. It's an emotion. It's emotional because, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not like some of the other things within the family piece, like the biological family, whether it's mirroring or or just knowing, oh, that's why I do that. You know, that's why I mm-hmm. like Cheetos so much. Everybody in my bio family loves Cheetos. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a lot of that kind of stuff. But with the adoption community, it is more emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the emotional belonging. Yeah, I'm glad yeah, you said mean. that, which does go back to that word, attunement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think it just can fill like a, a gap for us
0: mm-hmm. that
1: maybe we didn't even know was a gap. I mean, I wasn't moving through my life saying, geez, the one thing I'm missing is an adoption support group. Right. But then once I got into those spaces, it was like, whoa, something big is going on here for my like emotional system. Mm-hmm. And so I got curious about what that was.
0: Yeah, I did too. I'm very curious about it because I often have thought, you know, there's these various groups that I feel like I belong in, you know, I'm black, I'm a woman. I, from Chicago, like all these different groups that Mm -hmm. I can't imagine not being around other people that identify with those groups, but not making the connection, maybe not at least not consciously, maybe On some other level I did, but consciously I was not thinking I need to be around other adoptees. You know, I wasn't Mm -hmm. thinking like that. Probably a number of reasons why. (laughs) But uh, now that I am connected or, or better connected, I absolutely understand why I should be and want to be around this part of my identity. You know, I, I know we, we have a lot, there are a lot of things we identify with, hopefully don't overly identify with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we identify with so many things. And yeah, why wouldn't you want to to be around people like that, you know, mm-hmm. because of that atonement that you will receive. Yeah, mm-hmm. the emotional belonging. Well, is there anything... That you want to share about what's been most meaningful I know you're going to go back to talking about your birth mom but what has been meaningful about search and being in reunion I know they're two very big different things
1: Uh I mean for me it was such a homecoming to myself that's what it it felt like most of all like I'm I found lots of people and there are lots of relationships being navigated. But the the biggest thing I searched for and found was me. And forgive me if you have interviewed or referenced him previously, but Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC is adopted. And mm-hmm. pretty early in my journey, I was reading some articles he had been in And he said, I was living life without my chapter one. Now I'm a reader. I love to read. And that hit something in my brain. Like I am reading my life story. And we started on chapter two. Right. Like, are you kidding
0: me? Yeah, I identified with that when I heard him say it too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was just such a, a, a concept for me that was like this rocket ship. So when I think about what I've reclaimed in reunion, from my name to my birth story, learning the story, the circumstances, all the players, and now, oh my gosh, myself, who I am, my health history, my ethnicity, all of the mirroring with my parents and siblings, it has given me this wholeness and this rootedness. That I could not access before.
0: Mm.
1: I I had never felt it.
0: I like how you put that. It's like reclaiming your chapter one.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the relationships are, even though they are massive and extraordinary, they're really secondary to getting me back or finding me for the first time. I'm still trying to put words on that there was just so, there were such missing pieces that this was like a cellular shift for me. As I went over these last couple of years and and found all of these pieces of who I am and all of these people and found the truths, even though some of them are hard truths. It's just been a homecoming.
0: Mm. Yeah, you've had, Two major shifts. I mean, the universe shifted with learning you were named Samantha, and then like reclaiming chapter one is a cellular shift. That's that's Mm -hmm. pretty special. Yeah,
1: Um, think yeah. I think we're we're at first I wanted to say we're different people on the other side, and then I thought no. That's not the right wording. We're more fully ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that looks really different. Maybe we show up in the world differently, but it's like this expansion that happens from if you are willing, able and have the privilege to go down this road. I know I want to be aware that some adoptees can't and aren't able because of laws and policies and all of this archaic kind of systemic stuff around adoption. So I feel so grateful, you know, I even live in a state where this could happen. And then the flip side is I feel appalled that I live in a state where this could happen and that there are states where it can't. I just kind of am holding all that at once.
0: Yeah, I remember when Illinois changed their adoption law, and I was able to request my original birth certificate in uh, 2011. And New York was still saying, nope, nope, not happening. Mm-hmm. And and <laughs> I think when Illinois did, I mean, it it caused some of the states to say, wait a minute, well, I guess all hell didn't break loose with Illinois. You know, the, the mm-hmm. adoptees, yeah, yeah the, like the... Like the world didn't blow up so maybe we can revisit it. And Illinois, I know my Chicago friends were so excited about New York finally doing the right thing. So I know it's changing a little too Mm -hmm. slow in my opinion. Yeah,
1: I would agree with all of that. Yeah. Changing too slow.
0: And it is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. We were so excited for New York. So I'm glad you have your original birth certificate. Mm Mm-hmm. Cause it means a lot. I, I I did know my name given at birth throughout the years, but here's the thing. Here's the piece. Until I saw, you know, I was told that was my name. Bonnie Mm -hmm. was my name given at birth, but until Mm -hmm. I saw my original birth certificate, it wasn't real to me. If that makes sense, right? Like, so I remember when I saw it, I was like, that was the truth, right? To the a part of my beginnings, my chapter one, and. So yeah. it is a document that even people in Reunion who know a lot of their story, they still want and deserve the original
1: document. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. What a great point as someone who had knew their name, how important it was to still reclaim your documents your identity yeah that those were kind of almost separate things
0: separate things entirely and I didn't think I was Mm -hmm. being lied to but I just remember saying yeah that was the truth you -hmm. know and it was something that my birth mother gave me you know like it was it was something she left me with um with the relinquishment so Mm -hmm. I know you are a brilliant writer I the Every time I read your words, I'm like, yes, that's what that was what I feel and have felt. Uh, and, and I know you're going to read, I believe. Oh, you got to share about your your birth mom. Did you finish that part?
1: No, I can before I read if you like.
0: Yes. Yeah. Tell tell us a little bit more about your birth mom.
1: Yeah. So I I think where I left off from talking about my reunion is that both parents Birth parents really regarded me with a lot of openness and love. My relationship with my birth father has been more of a marathon, and with my mom was more of a sprint. So when I found her, we've spoken every day since. We've never we've never missed a day, and we Im- immediately had this pretty profound connection. Now, remember, she did not want to relinquish me. She very much wanted to parent me. And so she really pined for me. Mm. These years I was gone. An important part of my story is both of my parents are in recovery from alcoholism. And when I found my mom, she was in recovery at that time. We decided very quickly to meet and um, we met about two weeks later. Now we lived, I found her in Boise, Idaho, and I live in Rochester, New York. So we're about 2,300 miles apart. After the forced adoption, her family immediately moved the family to Idaho because of shame. And they really wanted to hide and keep it a secret that this pregnancy had occurred at all. So that's why she was located so far away. So. We decided to meet quickly and we picked Chicago because it was a place we could both fly to directly, whereas we have to connect to get to each other's states. So we met in Chicago, despite the fact that my birth mom is my person and I adore her and she's a huge part of my life our initial meeting was a complete catastrophe because she relapsed.
0: Oh no. And I share that
1: for a specific reason. It to me really clearly demonstrates how traumatized many birth mothers are. Mm -hmm. And she really attributes her alcoholism and her PTSD to the forced relinquishment and adoption. Um she never went on to have other children and she's really battled severe alcoholism. So I think I it's important for people to know that the mothers are affected too. That certainly feels important to
0: me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you shared so, that. A lot of grief. I'm I'm just uh, imagining thanks. birth moms have carry a lot of grief.
1: Yes. Yes, grief, shame. Um, And she said it it felt like her child had died. And just the wondering, the pining, the wanting, the disenfranchised grief, it Mm. just was immense. So, I mean, I don't want that to be what people take away from my reunion story, but it's really not a full truth to paint a happy ending. This was very hard. This has been a lot of very hard work. Yeah. So she relapsed. That was a very hard weekend. It was not the fairy tale meeting my birth mother that I expected. That was a major rupture in our relationship that took time to repair. And she did pretty quickly get back into her program. um, And she's had, you know, a lot of sustained sobriety since that time. She's doing really well. So we went on to build a relationship despite that being what it was like for us to reunite. So I have been able to give her grace and through my own therapy and we move forward. What's really been exciting, fun and wonderful has been traveling to visit each other. Every month we decided either I would fly there. Yes. (laughs) So every month one of us would fly across the country We did that for a year. She'd come here, I'd go there. She got to know my husband. We started creating this life together. She did offer and then make the choice to move here to New York. So one, let's see, 14 months after I found her, she packed up her entire life. I had been working for the Department of Veterans Affairs for a number of years. I quit my job. I started a business, uh, private practice, and I flew to Idaho and we road tripped her across the U.S. And so now my mom lives here in New York, five so minutes up the road from me.
0: When I heard that, I, lo- I love that. I It's just an extraordinary experience that you're having yeah. with your birth mom. Oh. Yeah.
1: Oh, thank you. It's it's changed everything. It's, it's given me so much and we're just tremendously alike. So (laughs) I think think like the piece that I never really thought about, and I think people sometimes don't think about is compatibility is a factor here, right? Like Mm -hmm. you might find family, but what is your level of compatibility? What's your level of commitment There's all these factors that come into play. Can you give each other grace and compassion? Can you be honest? So we have had to work hard at this. I mean, both me and my biological parents are all in therapy individually. They're both in recovery, attending AA meetings. I mean, you have a group of people. And shout out to my adoptive dad, too. He's a really really great guy who's been on my team this whole time so you have a group of people working hard at something I don't think it has happened by accident that we're where we are now after a couple of years
0: I'm so glad you shared that piece because I think it's a winning formula or at least it can certainly start off as a winning formula when everybody is doing the work Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah. I'm glad you yes. have that. I'm really glad you have that. And I think people are starting to realize, well, just one person can't do the work and expect it to be a the best outcome.
1: Yeah, no, one person can't. I mean, that's way too heavy of a lift.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we're already managing so much as the adopted person. Yeah. When you've, you've got to have a group of people willing to do their own work and center us, let us share our true thoughts and feelings and needs. And yeah, I'm thankful that I have family that's been willing, willing to do that alongside me. That's made a world of a difference. Yeah.
0: Yeah. As we start to wrap things up, I I think it's fitting the the piece you wrote uh, about trusting myself in the year of flourish evidence Mm -hmm. whenever you're ready.
1: Trusting myself in the year of flourish evidence. I ordered my original birth documents. I trusted I could live through what they said. I trusted I was ready for whatever they would reveal to me. I opened them. I contacted a search angel. I trusted I could live through what she found, even though it would change all of the things I knew about myself to be true. I took her call. I went away alone to a cabin in the woods to process this. I trusted I was ready to hold all of this by myself. Not only ready, but I needed to hold this by myself. My only companion, nature. It can hold the enormity of this grief. I came home. I wrote letters to my first family, my biological mom and my biological dad. And I trusted that I could hold and sustain and endure whatever the outcome was. I mailed them. Summer solstice, the longest days of the year the week of my 37th birthday. I picked up the phone when both parents called and I trusted I could tolerate whatever they said and whatever I learned about me. I kept picking up. I asked all the questions I could muster. I laid my big feelings right on the table. We ate dinner alongside them. We talked them in at night. We danced with our feelings until our feet all hurt. I kept asking. I told the truth to my adoptive dad. I trusted that I could survive however he reacted. He keeps listening. I keep talking. I told the truth to my first parents. All the truth. They keep listening. I keep talking. I trusted my marriage. I was expanding. He was sharing me now. There was no going back. He keeps choosing me. All versions. I trusted those closest to me would stick around. I wasn't around for a long while. You might see my body, but my mind was out to sea, bobbing among the waves so far from shore, trying on different lives in my mental ocean while you eat your tuna sandwich. My quest was my purpose now. They still love me. I met my birth mother, her, her. I met my birth mother. I trusted I was ready and I wanted that relationship in my life. The shift in my body was cellular. Her heartbeat is home. I kept meeting her. I met my birth father. I trusted I was ready and I wanted that relationship in my life. We mutually adore and respect each other. He didn't know he didn't know he created a whole person. I kept meeting him. I met my half siblings. I trusted I was ready and I wanted those relationships in my life. They're wonderful people. Imagine what they had to consider, accept, and reckon with about their father, their concept of family, and they showed up for me. We're gonna keep going. I met some extended maternal and paternal family trusting I was ready and I wanted those relationships in my life. That journey is only beginning. We are gonna keep going. I trusted that my life purpose was shifting, that I would take my social work career And instead of serving veterans, I would serve adopted people. This is my calling. My voice is needed. I can help others. I must. I know my purpose. I trusted that a book was coming from my heart out through my fingertips. I prioritized writing in the middle of the night, in airports, on airplanes, on breaks at work, in a Kansas cemetery, on Lake Michigan, in the car with my husband driving to Maryland by the pool at an Orlando resort, looking at the Pacific ocean in the Blue Ridge Mountains on a balcony in Annapolis, keep writing. I trusted myself over and over and over again this year. And I was right. I kept moving towards my true north and my best interests each and every time. It was terrifying. It was exceptionally worth it. It was gutting. It was exhilarating. It was heartbreaking. It is a gorgeous adventure. I am just getting started.
0: So many lines resonate with me, um, and I think that's exactly what I did. I trusted over and over and over again, mm-hmm. and I, I just think you are such a talented writer. and And I like that when you say, "And I was right." <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know. Uh, maybe that part was a little self-righteous. I don't know. <laughs> well, it it
0: spoke to me. It definitely did because, yeah, you don't know what you're gonna find. I didn't know, like you, I didn't know what I was gonna see on that original birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what uh, finding my maternal birth side was gonna look like, or the paternal side. <laughs> and yet, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it was trusting myself that you know it's not going to destroy me like what I find Mm -hmm. what I learn what's possible because that's the question I often ask myself what is possible in in reunion and and to focus on that opposed to what's maybe not possible yet you know
1: oh I love that (laughs) what is possible that's a
0: great perspective I am so oh go ahead
1: I was just going to say, and if we lean towards the what is possible, look at what could potentially happen.
0: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I'm just so glad that we had this time together. This has been great. I knew it would be informative and meaningful and and most enjoyable. So I thank Mm -hmm. you for having this conversation.
1: You're welcome. It was just as much for me it was rich and i really enjoyed my time for you with you thank you so much
0: is there anything that i didn't ask you that you want to share
1: no i think i think we covered a lot and it was such an honor to read some of my writing and talk about my journey and then also kind of adoption in that larger sense so i feel satisfied thank you again
0: Katie, upon seeing the name Samantha given at birth on her original birth certificate and remembering a childhood doll by the same name, feels like a profound synchronicity in her life. I can only imagine the universe shifting in that moment for her. Whoever thinks that it's not a big deal for an adoptee to receive and read every single word on the original record of birth has never met an adoptee who has held that document in their hand for the first time. Even when there is missing information, I haven't known an adopted person who isn't deeply appreciative to have obtained it. It is heartbreaking to listen to the condemnation that birth mothers suffered at the hands of a religious institution known as LDS. The deep dive that Katie did to learn and unmask The systematic bureaucratic truths of adoption won't be kept in the dark if she has something to do with it. Any facts that expose a false narrative about there only being good things about adoption is a good thing for the world to know. The church's involvement in demonizing thousands of unwed pregnant girls and young women is particularly disturbing when I consider that religious institutions ought to be the one place where one can find compassion and acceptance. I believe Katie thoughtfully positioned herself in her own intentional way to create an emotionally good space prior to looking for, finding, and then managing relationships with her biological family. A career in social work Embracing professional therapy, having a mentor, doing her research, and joining writing groups have all played a role in Katie being able to trust that she could live through the things that she would discover along her journey. Thank you, Katie, for having this conversation with me. I envisioned it to be meaningful, informative, and enjoyable. It exceeded my expectations. In closing, I want to read some of your words published in The Flourish Experience. The piece is titled, The Year of Self-Trust. My experiences are not so big and isolating and terrifying anymore. Through the mirroring and attunement of other adoptees, my growth was propelled. I found my agency. The antidote to trauma. My inner voice, once shuddered, shaved off, marginalized, shape shifted for adoption, now screamed. Like a call and response, I'd send out the need for emotional help or understanding to other adoptees, and they'd come. At various states in their own adoption journey, there they were with their container ready. Waiting, fill my bowl, I can take it, let it out, here are my hands, pour your thoughts onto them, cry your tears, I am your people, my mother left me too. Gush. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here.